subscribe to Tripod Talk Radio for conversations with veterinarians, oncologists, rehab therapists, and other experts discussing amputation for dogs and cats. Find more info, helpful care tips, and a free gift at tripods.com slash radio. Thank you for tuning in to Tripod Talk Radio, where we're spreading the word that it's better to hop on three legs than limp on four. Hosted by Jim and Renee and Wyatt Ray of the Tripod Blogs community at Tripods.com, Jerry's Place for canine amputees and their people. That's silly, Jerry. Today is Saturday, February 26, 2011. I'm Jim, a.k.a. Admin from Tripods.com, and you're listening to Tripod Talk Radio. We have a very special show for you today. Dr. Johnny Curtin from BCA West Los Angeles is with us to answer some common questions about canine cancer. We hope to discuss the different types of cancer found in dogs and address many of the treatment options available. Hi, uh, I'm Renee, uh, also known as Jerry at Tripods.com, and uh, we'll be taking calls today from our listeners at area code 310-388-9739. That's 310-388-9739. Go ahead and call us up, and you can also join us in the live chat room at Tripods.com slash chat to post any questions that you might have for Dr. Coutine. For now, let's get to know a little bit more about him. Hi, Dr. Kutin. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, hello. Um, glad glad to be a part of the show. Thanks. Thank you. Um, tell our, our listeners a little bit about yourself and, and what you do over at VCA. Yeah, so I work out at uh, the VCA West Los Angeles uh, Animal Hospital, and I'm a veterinary oncologist. I was uh, went to uh, veterinary school uh, up in Colorado, did my internship uh, down at North Carolina State University, and then a three-year residency out at uh, Tufts in uh, Massachusetts. And now I'm presently the head of the oncology department at the VCA West LA Animal Hospital. And there, you know, we treat a variety of cancers, you know, uh, come one, come all. Uh, with our newest treatment being uh, offering bone marrow transplantation for dogs with lymphoma. Wow, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so the bone marrow transplantation is, is something that's really exciting for us. It's um, it's something that uh, dogs have have typically or historically have always been the models for people. Uh, all the research that uh, has been discovered for human transplantation was first pioneered in dogs. So ironically now, you know, 30, 40 years later, we're finally to the point where we can actually start offering it to our animal friends, you know, for their benefit and not exclusively just for research. So what it does with lymphoma, lymphoma is, is a blood cell cancer. It's one of the more common cancers that dogs get, uh, cats as well. But what happens is that with chemotherapy alone, the cure rates generally are, are only as good as about 3%. Whereas with uh, bone marrow transplant, although it's new for uh, veterinary oncology, right now we're estimating the cure rate as high as about 40%. Um, but given that we're using the identical protocol 
that they use in humans for the same types of cancers, uh, we would expect that eventually the cure rate, you know, is probably going to be more similar to what it is in people, which is about 60%. So we're excited about it. Finally, you know, we're we're headed down the right pathway where we no longer have to just um, palliate or just uh, temporarily alleviate the symptoms of cancer. Now we can really start offering, you know, actual cures for our veterinary patients. Oh, that is terrific. That's really exciting news. So lymphoma, that's one of the cancers you see in dogs at VCA. I was going over some notes um, in preparation for the show, and you said that um, you mentioned that there are always options for pets. Owners should not assume that they have heard it all. Can you tell us some of the different treatment options you're offering for the different types of canine cancers there at VCA? Yeah, well, it's not just us. You know, um, you know, it, it's it's nationwide, wide, worldwide, that you know the treatment of cancer in animals is becoming very similar to what it is in people, where you know it's no longer, you know, here's a scalpel blade, here's a little bit of chemotherapy, and wish you well. You know, nowadays we know a lot more about cancer in humans and in, in animals, and likewise, there's a lot more treatments out there. So, you know, the old uh, ways of approaching these guys really isn't the same. Um, you know, now because we understand, you know, how to address pain, uh, you know, quality of life, you know, expectations for the owners, for the goals of the treatment, um, you know, the treatment for patients with cancer, it doesn't have to be, you know, toxic treatment, you know, things associated with higher chances at hurting patients. So what I like to do uh, anytime I hear of, a, of an owner with a dog with cancer is I really encourage them to, to talk to a specialist um, just because there are so many options out there. You know, there are a whole new category of, of um, non-chemotherapeutic uh, treatment options for cancer that are associated with a lot lower toxicity, a lot lower risk of side effects. And so for some owners, you know, the goal is more aimed at going for that almighty cure, which nowadays is, is, you know, more than ever possible. But likewise, there are some owners that are interested more in in just conservative management, you know, not necessarily treating the cancer, but making sure that their little critter, you know, remains as comfortable as possible while the disease runs its course. So because of that, you know, because of the whole plethora of options out there, whether it be dietary management, you know, pain control, you know, all the way to going for the cure. You know, I, I think it's important for owners to know what the options really are. And then that way, you know, 10 years down the road, you know, the goal would be that they can look back at that situation and feel comfortable with the decisions that they made and knowing that they had all the facts. And and do you have any uh, recommended resources that um, people can go to when they're they're researching cancer therapies and um, things like that for their dog. Yeah, absolutely. You know, prior to probably, I don't know, six, seven years ago, you know, I cringed at the notion of owners getting on the Internet and looking, scrolling <laughs> around there. But nowadays, you know, sites like yours, um, you know, along with a lot of sites that are available through um, academic institutions, you know, the big universities, Colorado, UC Davis, you know, along with the um, the ACVIM, which is the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine, they all have mm-hmm. sites or areas dedicated to um, cancer with lots of, of really good information out there. 
um, and soon we'll have our our VCA site. You know, presently is being remodeled, but hopefully within the next few weeks, you know, it'll be fully up and running, and, and that'll also serve as a good reference for owners. But there's definitely a, a lot of good information out there. You know, I still caution them to be a little careful. You know, the old adage is true. If it sounds too good, it probably is too good to be true. But, you know, there, there's a lot of really good information out there. Right. That's one of the things I hope that we can talk about later is, is how to distinguish bad information from good information. But uh, right now it looks like uh, Jim might have a, a call for you. No, I'm just uh, wondering, this discussion kind of leads into a question that uh, Samson007 asked in our discussion forums, and that is, we lost a 13-year-old Dobie to osteosarcoma in 1998. At the time, our vet mentioned amputation and chemo, which we opted out of due to his age. How much has cancer treatment advanced in dogs in the past 10 years, and what do you see coming up in the next 10 years? Do you, uh, is there anything on the horizon that owners should know about? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, there it isn't even any comparison. You know, 10 years ago, good grief. I mean, I, I can only imagine what things were like back then. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember I was I was in training during that time period. I was in vet school, actually. Um, no, I wasn't in vet school. I was actually a uh, resident at that point. But, um, yeah, I mean, everything has advanced. You know, the the big area that most of the, the attention is being placed on presently are on targeted therapies. And targeted therapies are, you know, rather than, uh, you know, just blandly and across the board damaging cells, both good and bad, is you target specific molecules that are unique to tumors, and by doing that, you can avoid, you know, a lot of the toxicity that that standard historical, you know, uh, treatment protocols would have, uh, you know, caused, you know, mainly chemotherapy. So it's this targeted therapy that is something to keep an eye out for, because even in diseases like osteosarcoma, they're showing, you know, uh, lots of now uh, assessed defects in osteosarcoma in particular, that a lot of drugs available, some already approved for use in animals, you know, can specifically target. So that's the the, the big, you know, new treatment um, is this targeted therapy, which we're all excited about. Um, but, you know, it's still early. And, you know, a lot of studies still need to, to occur in order for us to, you know, wholeheartedly start recommending them, especially for diseases like osteosarcoma. But it's coming for sure. But that's that's the thing to be on the lookout for. And, um, you know, other areas would be in the chemotherapeutics themselves. Um, you know, back, you know, 12, 14 years ago, you know, the treatment of choice was giving a drug called doxorubicin for osteosarcoma. Nowadays, you know, we know that there are other drugs, cisplatin being the premier, along with carboplatin, that all offer very similar uh, survival times, you know, very similar responses, but the advantage to having multiple drugs that we can prescribe now are that, you know, we can really titrate it in for the right patients, meaning that if an animal has a little pre-existing heart disease, well, we can't give them doxorubicin, but hence we can give them carboplatin or cisplatin. You know, so a lot has really changed, and a lot will change, but targeted therapies are kind of where everything's uh, steering towards right now, uh, and uh, we're all excited about it. So that allows you to target a specific treatment to a dog's specific condition? Right. It'll, well, it, yes, 
Yes and no. You know, the targeted therapies allow us to, you know, chemotherapy, you know, the classic example, chemotherapy. When we give chemotherapy to an animal, you know, it does, in a way, preferentially damage cancer cells, but it'll also damage normal cells just the same. It's just that a lot of cancerous cells lack the ability to repair the damage that we cause. So eventually we cause cumulative damage and, and death. But, you know, you give enough chemo to a normal cell, it's going to die just the same. Targeted therapies are more directed at the defect that cancerous cells have. So it's no longer affecting normal cells, or at least not as many normal cells. It preferentially is damaging the cell target, the cancer cell. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's very interesting. And um, I assume side effects are also um, a consideration when dealing with different types of drugs and, and dogs. I know we talked about this briefly when we met, but could you address um, perhaps some different common side effects for cisplatin versus carboplatin or oxy? Mm -hmm. Well, when you're talking about osteosarcoma in general, you know, the drugs, like we said, were carboplatin, cisplatin, and doxorubicin. I mean, those are really the mainstays of, of treatment. And pros and cons of, of all three of them, you know, starting with uh, carboplatin. The carboplatin definitely seems to be the better tolerated of the group. Um, but the trade-off is, you know, depending on what study you look at, you know, for the most part, carboplatin tends to carry a little shorter survival time, especially when you're looking at the two- and three-year survival rate. But for, you know, really older dogs, you know, dogs with pre-existing heart disease, you know, the carboplatin would definitely be the better of the drugs. Uh, doxorubicin has always been kind of the mainstay. And then now the newer uh, drug, well, newer, meaning the last 12 years or so, uh, cisplatin is considered now the standard of care. But cisplatin, unfortunately, you know, is probably one of the worst drugs that we give to a dog um, just because most dogs, you know, at least 90% of them will have, you know, three or four days where they are going to feel a little sluggish. Um, they're going to be a little finicky with their appetite, a little nausea, um, but generally, you know, mild, and it passes, and uh, cisplatin is, is given to them every three weeks. So compare that to carboplatin, where most dogs don't have any side effects. Um, you know, it's night and day, um, but the benefit of the cisplatin is that it does offer a bit better uh, survival at the one-year mark and certainly really starts to show itself at the two- and three-year mark. But overall, chemotherapy, the big areas of side effects are really on the uh, intestinal tract, on the white blood cells, and then on the, um, you know, hair growth. And hair growth is probably the least important one, um, just because, you know, most dogs, they don't care what they look like. Um, okay. But hair growth, yeah, hair growth is, generally, we only see, you know, substantial hair loss in breeds of animals that have continually growing hair, like us, you know, that we require haircuts. So breeds mm -hmm. like poodles, they are going to lose a substantial amount of hair, but it'll all grow back. Uh, on the white cell count, at the doses we prescribe, whether it's carbo, doxo, or cisplatin, you know, what I can tell owners or what I can tell you is that 85, 90% of dogs, at the doses we prescribe, their white cell counts can stay right in that safe range. But, you know, with any treatment, especially chemo, the first time around is when we really want to watch them like a hawk. You know, make sure that, you know, yes, they are in that majority group, Otherwise, um, you know, if they're not, then we just make uh, dose modifications to fit their needs. 
But so the white cell count, you know, generally is not something that owners will see as a side effect. It's usually something that we'll diagnose based on blood work. So it's the intestinal side effects that's the more common. You know, that's what owners tend to see the most. And with any of the drugs that we prescribe, you know, a lot of dogs will have no side effects, you know, that are obvious other than maybe a little lethargy for 24, 48 hours after each treatment. The exception is the cisplatin, where most dogs, you know, will be affected for three or four days. And that's why cisplatin really is the worst of the drugs. But, you know, as far as the likelihood of hospitalization, you know, you're still looking at, you know, less than 5% of dogs will actually need to be hospitalized for one of those side effects. I hope I that's, answered the that's question. That's really great to hear. Oh, absolutely. Um, and in and, and talking about side effects, these are all uh, short-term ones, but we have a a member who is asking about long-term effects on the, the kidneys. Um, mm-hmm. We've had two two members so far who have had kidney issues after completing uh, chemo. Mm-hmm. And um, our member, uh, Karen, wants to know um, if you're looking into any strategies that can limit the toxicity of, of chemo drugs and um, and how long-term survivors and and organ their organ functions um, do after after completing chemo successfully. Um, what what yeah. are you seeing in, in terms of long term survivors? Well, the cisplatin again, you know, unfortunately is the worst of the drugs that we give, you know, for dogs with osteosarcoma. But from the survival perspective, you know, definitely the best uh, with that regard. But the cisplatin is is directly kidney toxic. And so prior to each dose of cisplatin, you know, we will check their kidney functions. And if there's any alteration compared to baseline, then the, the treatment's discontinued. You know, but uh, animals with cisplatin-induced kidney failure, although I'm sure, you know, it, it's it's out there. You know, I've never had a dog that developed any uh, kidney insufficiency secondary to cisplatin that after stopping the cisplatin didn't go away or was no longer a problem for the pet. You know, but there really aren't any um, any uh, prophylactic maneuvers that I know of that would prevent the, um, the toxicity associated with cisplatin other than what we uh, do when we administer the drug. And when we administer the drug, you know, in order to uh, really get those kidneys, you know, pumping, and minimize the risk of toxicity is, is they all go on five hours of fluid diuresis. Doxorubicin is a drug that um, in humans and in cats can be renal toxic, but they've never really established that that occurs in dogs. We still approach dogs with, with kidney disease very cautiously if we're thinking of giving them doxorubicin. Uh, if anything, mm-hmm. we try to avoid it, but it certainly hasn't been described in dogs as of yet. So as far as long-term, you know, complications, um, you know, now talking years down the road, you know, there really aren't any good studies um, looking at dogs from that perspective because I guess the, the there's no way to tell, you know, if a dog got five doses of doxorubicin and then three years later developed kidney failure, you know, there's no way to really look back and say for sure it was the chemo or you know, or maybe it could have been just an age-related event that regardless of the treatment, it would have occurred. Do you know what I mean? Sure, sure. 
Um, earlier we were talking about the, the different options available, and you mentioned some um, dietary considerations. And Maggie in our chat room asks, are there any specific diet recommendations you have for dogs with cancer, things they should stay away from or work best? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a tough question to answer just because, you know, again, we really don't have all the data. We certainly know that in dogs with various cancers that there are, you know, metabolic alterations with them. You know, there's, a, you know, a higher, um, uh, you know, lactate production. Um, you know, we know that cancer cells preferentially like, you know, easily uh, digested sugars, you know, carbohydrates. So that's why a lot of the the cancer diets out there, you know, specialize in in uh, having a very high uh, protein content, low carbohydrate content. But when they've actually done the clinical studies, you know, those types of diets, you know, really didn't make a substantial difference, you know, across the board. You know, there were a select group of dogs here or there that, you know, it, it may have benefited, but you know, if it doesn't benefit the majority of patients it's hard to, to recommend those kinds of dietary changes. But it's not to say that there's, you know, nothing there because, you know, there are, you know, as with osteosarcoma, we know that those dogs can be a little deficient in chromium. We know they can, they can be deficient in iron. But, you know, how it impacts overall survival, the well-being of the pet, you know, those are things that we still need to really sort out. So for right now, you know, based on what we know, you know, I still tell owners that any name brand, you know, dog food, you're good to go on. Um, you know, for those owners that are inclined or willing to do supplementation, then sure, you know, I, we have not, you have nothing to lose. You know, you're, you're certainly not going to hurt the pet, but whether or not it's going to benefit the pet, you know, that still remains to be proven. Do you see a, a time in the future when um, there will be more studies that, that document um, successful nutrition plans for, for cancer dogs? Oh, absolutely. They're going on right now. You know, um, they, they've been going on for the last decade or so. You know, mm -hmm. it's just the, the problem really lies in that, again, when you grow cancer in a lab in a dish, you know, we know what it likes and what it doesn't like. But in the living body, you know, it, it's a completely different ballgame. So even though we can feed cancers in a lab in a dish the right food to slow down their growth in the living body, it's a completely different ballgame. So, you know, what exact supplements or what exact diet we should be feeding our pets, you know, still, you know, a lot more research has to be done in order for us to make, you know, wholehearted recommendations to owners. Uh, but it's coming. There's no doubt about it, you know, and it would really surprise me if sooner or later, you know, we don't we, we don't find diets that we're recommending. But right now, because, you know, there really isn't anything that's, you know, wholeheartedly proven across the board, you know, it's really hard to make those kinds of recommendations, especially since those diets tend to be pretty expensive. But for those owners that are willing, you got nothing to lose, you know, and I say absolutely go for it. Interesting. Thanks. But uh, along these lines is a common concern we hear about at Tripods, and, and Ted just asked in the chat room, what about using Advantix or other type of flea and tick protection or, or heartworm protection? How is that an impact either during chemotherapy or on dogs with cancer? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, you know, the it, it doesn't, not that we know of. Um, you know, from the perspective of the oncologist myself, you know, especially for a dog that's dealing with cancer and all the, you know, complications associated with that and its treatment, you know, the one complication that they don't need is to be itchy and have, you know, allergies. So I always encourage my owners, especially if the patient, you know, has uh, tolerated uh, flea and tick preventatives, you know, in the past, to go ahead and just continue giving it to them because there's nothing out there that would say otherwise, you know, that it's harmful or negates anything. And back back in, oh gosh, I don't even know, maybe the 80s, you know, they did show an association with flea and tick products with uh, bladder tumors, um, but it was a very loose association. And since then, they went on to show that that wasn't necessarily true. So, you know, from that perspective of, of those products causing cancer themselves, you know, there, there's really nothing solid out there that would suggest that. So, again, you know, from the quality of life perspective of the pet, you know, it's better to go ahead and treat them and make sure they they remain flea-free, you know, rather than them having another problem to contend with. Oh, that's, that's really great to hear because we get a lot of people asking about that. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of leads into another question we had from Triplice member KZ55, which was about proactive treatment. Um, just a little background, Ajax is a lab who had level 1 chondrosarcoma, and his vet uh, does not believe the cancer had spread at the time of the mm-hmm. station. And mm-hmm. all checks are cancer-free eight months later. So mm-hmm. specifically she asked, is there... Uh, if there is no cancer and doctors don't think there will be, should we be changing diet and using immune system supplements such as canine immunity or others mm-hmm. like that? Oh, why or why not? Yeah, well, the canine immunity, I mean, a lot of the supplements out there are based on really solid science. You know, again, you know, how it translates from the, the laboratory to the patient, you know, is is the area for debate. And, you know, it's very difficult to, to uh, conduct, you know, controlled, you know, uh, placebo, you know, randomized studies, you know, using supplements like that. So, you know, those types of studies are going to take a lot longer to prove. You know, there are definitely plenty of testimonials out there that would say that, you know, there is some benefit to it. But in, uh, you know, uh, scientific studies, you know, that are controlled, um, you know, there really isn't anything as of yet that would say absolutely positively, you know, immune supplements make a difference. But again, you know, it's evolving. And, you know, sooner or later, I truly believe that we'll be to that point where, you know, a dog's diagnosed with cancer X and we put them on supplements Y and Z. Um, but as of right now, you know, it, it's hard for me to recommend things if, you know, there there aren't any scientific studies to to um, substantiate the use or to justify the use. So from the perspective of, of not having cancer, a chondrosarcoma, you know, those tumors, you know, although they do arise in bone, they're, they're you know, cartilage-producing tumors, those tumors definitely are better behaviors uh, with regards to all bone tumors in general in that, you know, they tend to take a lot longer for them to spread. And so, you know, with surgery, survival times are much, much, much better compared to, uh, you know, dogs with osteosarcoma. But a lot hinges on the grade of the tumor. Um, with the high-grade tumors being the worst, um, you know, those are tumors that, you know, within eight months of surgery often do show up somewhere else and get you. Whereas with the low-grade tumors, you know, three, four years later, it could be that, you know, the tumor's finally showing itself. 
but with chondrocytomas. Go ahead. Uh, Go ahead. I was just going to say, with just a couple minutes left here, that's a perfect segue to a question we had in the chat room from Emily B. Where does osteosarcoma show up most commonly after the AMP? They're 10 months post-amputation and the chest is clear. Uh, they worry about things like brain cancer and things like that, and they're not doing chemo. So is it most common in the lungs, or if not, where? Yeah, most common in the lungs for sure. Um, blood spread is, is the most common, but in about 7% of dogs, it'll show up in bones as well. Uh, it can show up in the soft tissues, in the brain, but the lungs, you know, by far is the most common area. And that's why, you know, routine rechecks on these guys, you know, generally is the cornerstone is chest x-rays. Um, and just one final question here. One thing we get when most people receive the diagnosis is, how long does my dog have? You know, that's mm -hmm. the first question. And, and our first response is focus on quality, not quantity. And mm -hmm. in, say, one minute or so, what, what do you tell people when they say, you know, how long does my dog have? Well, the honest answer is we don't know, you know, because every dog's different. Um, but it depends on the tumor type, and it certainly depends on the aggressiveness of the treatment. For something like osteosarcoma, with only local treatment, um, you know, meaning amputation or radiation or something like that, you're generally looking at anywhere between three to five months. And with uh, local treatment along with chemotherapy, you're typically looking at more like, you know, 12 to 14 months for an average survival time. But it really depends on the tumors because there are tumors that, you know, although they can get you, if treated appropriately, can have cure rates of 85% or, or better. That, that's great. Wonderful news. We, we really appreciate your time on that. Uh, we just wanted to give you an opportunity to say anything else you might want to about BCA and what you're doing there. Oh, well, no, I think the big message for owners is, is just to realize that there are a lot of treatment options out there, and it doesn't have to be, you know, all directed at attacking the cancer and the side effects and, and the whole nine yards. You know, so I would just really encourage owners, if their pet's been diagnosed with cancer, is to go ahead and just sit down, talk with a specialist, not as a commitment, but just to get the information. Um, so, again, that 10 years down the road, you know, they can look back and, and really feel comfortable with the decisions they made. We really appreciate your time, Doctor. Thank you very much. That wraps up this episode. Until next time on Tripod Talk Radio, learn more about canine amputation recovery and find the best gear for three-legged dogs at tripods.com. Thank you for tuning in. Subscribe to Tripod Talk Radio for more pet amputation tips from experts and claim your free gift just for listeners at downloads.tripods.com slash podcast. True.